Welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are with us last week, you'll know that we finished uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we are now in 2 Peter. So I invite you to turn there to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's hear God's word together. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that you are full of every good thing every good thing that we need but lack. And Father, we confess that we are often empty wells in need of your filling. We lack love, humility, selflessness, courage, faith, every good thing, Lord. And so, Father, we pray this morning as we come to your word that you would fill us with these things. Uh, you know the needs of every single person here, the needs of every heart here. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would bring the comfort and the conviction, the transformation, the challenging, the illumination that we all need but lack. We pray, Lord, that through your word this morning, you would fill us. We pray that you would do what you do, namely, uh, meet every one of our needs, Father. You are our provider, our rock, and we ask that you would address us this morning through your life-giving truth. Uh, help us to understand it, believe it, and be transformed by it. Amen. The last words attributed to the great German reformer Martin Luther were, we are beggars, this is true. It's a great way to go, especially with Luther's understanding of grace. We are beggars, this is true. And I think this beautifully sums up our position before God. What are we before God, apart from his grace and goodness, beggars? We are needy, needy, needy. Uh, we need him to provide again and again what do we lack? Uh, we contribute nothing to our salvation. He contributes everything that we need to be reconciled to him and experience every blessing. And what we're going to look at this morning as we look at these opening verses of Second Peter is exactly that, God's provision uh, for sinners like us to experience all of his blessings in this life and in the one to come. Uh, specifically, we will look at the way Jesus provides three things for us. Jesus provides faith, everything we need for godliness, and conformity to God's character. Jesus provides faith, everything we need for godliness, and conformity to God's character. All of these things are in him. Another way of, say, of saying it, by the way, is Jesus provides conversion, sanctification, and glorification, to use that terminology, but they more or less say the same thing. Uh, before we jump in, though, and start looking at all that we have in Jesus Christ, it's helpful to take a step back 
and just consider some background issues to the letter that will help us to better interpret and understand it. Uh, first thing to note is that it was written by the Apostle Simon Peter, an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is often mentioned in the Gospels. Uh, interestingly, he is referred to, he refers to himself as Simeon Peter. Uh, that form of his name is less frequent in the New Testament. We normally find Simon, which is the Greek or Hellenized version of the name. There's only one other place that I know of in the New Testament, Acts 15, I believe, where Simeon is used, and this is the, um, the Palestinian version of the name. It's perhaps the equivalent to George and Gheorghe, English-Romanian, right? Uh, you hear the difference? It's that kind of thing. Uh, but it's the Apostle Peter who is writing this letter. Uh, he is uh, chosen by Jesus Christ as his authoritative spokesperson. So when he speaks, our Lord speaks, and, and therefore his letter has the authority of Scripture. He writes this letter uh, near the end of his life. At this point in his life, he is in Rome, somewhere around 65 AD, just before he is martyred. Uh, and he writes this that they might remember all of the uh, important things that he has to tell them before he departs from this earth. Second Peter 1.14, Peter writes, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. My death is close. And interestingly, he refers to what Jesus says in John 21. If you're familiar with John's gospel, after Jesus reinstates Peter, feed my sheep, Jesus tells him how he's going to die. He's going to die to glorify him. And Peter refers to that promise in, um, in that verse, in 14, as our Lord Jesus made clear. So Peter's writing in Rome before his martyrdom to believers. Uh, this is the second letter that he sends them. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. It may well be the case that the first letter is 1 Peter, or it could be some other letter. We can't be absolutely certain, but it's likely that uh, the first letter is in view. And he's writing to them so that they can remember certain essential things about the faith after he's gone. 2 Peter uh, 1.15, And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. That's the relationship between the apostles and New Testament scriptures. The apostles were Christ's spokespersons. Uh, what they said is the word of God. We need to believe it and live it in accordance with it. The difficulty is they died. And the apostolic office is not one that gets repeated over and over again in between Christ's first and second comings. So how do we gain access to the apostolic message? Well, they penned their message in the New Testament documents. Uh, Peter says as much. He wants them to be able to remember certain things after his departure from the world, so he's written this letter. It's a relationship between apostles and the books of the New Testament that we have. Uh, through them, the apostles continue to speak, and through the apostles, Jesus continues to speak to us. So he wrote them that they could recall certain things, and uh, the letter was written specifically, 3.18, for this purpose, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they would grow in their knowledge of Jesus. Uh, two crucial themes that, the, that Second Peter contributes to the teaching of the New Testament is the danger of false prophets and false teachers, something that we've already looked at in Ephesians but is developed more thoroughly in chapter 2. Uh, false teaching is not just an innocuous error, it's destructive to the soul. Dirty thoughts lead to dirty lives. False teaching is destructive. It's the focus of chapter 2. And then chapter 3 focuses on the second coming of Jesus Christ, what we refer to as eschatology, the study of last things. And he focuses on the second coming because this is precisely what the skeptics and the false teachers seem to be denying. 
that Jesus will in fact return. So he addresses it at length. Well, that's 2 Peter in a nutshell. So turning back to these opening verses, the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus provides faith to his people. Faith is a gift that he bestows. Look at uh, the way he addresses his audience. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of interesting things happening here in this verse. First thing to note is that Peter identifies Jesus with God. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ refer to the same person. This is clearer in the Greek. Uh, in the underlying Greek construction, there's a, there, there's a construction where uh, there's the article, the, followed by two nouns united with the word and or chi. And when you have that construction in the Greek, basically those two nouns refer to the same thing. Now, the significance of that is clear. Uh, Peter is attributing divinity to Jesus. Jesus is truly man, yes, but he is also God. This is one of those clear, bald statements in the New Testament that Jesus is God, or better, he is one with God. He is divine. So if you want a, a proof text when the Jehovah Witnesses come to your door, they knock, deny the divinity of Jesus, there you go. 2 Peter 1, 1. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A couple of other places in the New Testament, there's a lot of ways in which the New Testament affirms the deity of Jesus, but it does so quite clearly and directly in a few other places, one of them being Romans 9, 5. Listen carefully. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Pretty straightforward statement. Remember that one, Romans 9, 5. Uh, Titus 1.13 probably teaches the same thing, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God and Savior. It's important to recognize that for our salvation, we need both the humanity and divinity of Jesus. His humanity means he's one of us, our brother, flesh of our flesh, bone of our bones. It's an amazing thing to consider that the eternal Son of God identified with human beings and became one of us. He didn't become an angel. He became human. He became one of us and thereby ennobled our humanity, lifted us up. And because He is human, He can be our representative. His humanity contributes to our salvation, as does His divinity. Only God can save sinners. When Jesus acts to save sinners, God acts to save sinners. And because God himself acts, we are certain that we are saved. In the person of Jesus Christ, God himself has come into the world, has taken our infinite guilt away, and through his action we can be reconciled to God. So we have placed our confidence, not finally, in merely the work of man, we have placed our confidence in the work of God. What Jesus does, God does. It's an amazing statement about the divinity of Jesus. Number two, notice that he refers to them in a way that shows that their faith is received from God. Those who have obtained, or as the NIV puts it, we translate it also, who have received a faith of equal standing with ours. Faith is a gift. Our ability to respond to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to trust in him, that ability doesn't come from within. That is a God-given response. Now, to be clear, it's not that God believes for us. We're the ones doing the believing. But it is God who gives us the gift of faith. Uh, we often don't think in these terms about 
salvation, but Scripture teaches in several places that the act of trusting in Jesus is a God-given gift. And by the way, it's not just you who have received that gift. Uh, All of our brothers and sisters have a faith of equal standing. Peter says that your faith is equivalent to my faith and our faith, which is an amazing statement, right? He's an apostle. We have a faith of equal standing. There are no second-class Christians in the body of Christ. We are all redeemed by the shed blood of our Savior. We are brothers and sisters, and we need to treat each other that way. We need to always be very careful about, A, thinking of ourselves as second-class citizens. It's a temptation, perhaps. Paul Gardner's commentary talks about this, where we think of the other Christians as, well, yeah, those people you know, really walk with the Lord, but there's something deficient about me. No, there are no second-class citizens in the body of Christ, and in addition, we shouldn't view others as second-class citizens. Their faith is of equal standing with ours. So how do we have this gift of faith? How, how is it that uh, Christ has given us the, the gift of faith or brought it to pass? We're told by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that through the redemptive work of Jesus, we have the gift of faith. That phrase, righteousness of God, is often used in the Old Testament to refer to God's salvation. For instance, in Psalm 98, verse 2, we're told, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. Notice the parallel between salvation and righteousness. Isaiah 46, 13, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. Again, notice righteousness and and salvation being paralleled, the righteousness of God and salvation. What Peter is saying is that through the saving acts of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, he purchased for us the gift of faith. Faith flows from the cross. And that adds an interesting perspective on faith, I think. Uh, We tend to think of faith uh, as the means by which we are saved, and that's right and true and biblical. We are saved by faith. But from another perspective, it's also true that we believe by salvation. The work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, his saving work, is the reason we have the gift of faith. It flows from him and his saving work. Sometimes we, as I've suggested earlier, have too narrow a view of the saving work of Jesus. We think that he came and he died and rose again, and for that reason we're reconciled to God. And praise God, that's true. There's nothing false about that. That's absolutely true. But Jesus didn't just come and die and rise again. He also granted to us the power to believe that message and be transformed by it. It does not lie within our power to respond positively to the gospel. As amazing as the gospel is, as great as that news is, we are spiritually dead. And it is only through the gift of God, the gift of faith, that we can trust in Jesus as our Savior. So if today you're trusting in Jesus, and you're rejoicing in the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life, understand that you believe in Jesus because of what God has done in your heart. Even that is an expression of his mercy. We need to have a broader and deeper view of God's salvation. It was his eternal plan that initiated our salvation. It was the work of his son that accomplished our salvation. And then at some point in our lives, when we heard about Jesus, the Holy Spirit opened our hearts to believe, and we received the gift of faith. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. 
It's not that God came really close to us and said, hey, now you've got to meet, go the rest of the way and meet me where I am. No, God came all the way down to where we were. He met absolutely every need and removed absolutely every obstacle that we might be reconciled to him. Even the faith by which we receive God is itself a gracious gift. What that means is that we should get rid of every scrap of self-righteousness that still clings to our hearts and minds. We contributed zero to our salvation. It's all gift from beginning to end. We recognize that we can just bask in the goodness of God, walk in humility, and love others as we recognize that none of this is deserved. We are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. We are full of needs, but God is the God who supplies every need, and he's done so in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Psalm 115, verse 1. So faith, conversion, is itself the gift of Jesus Christ. But secondly, everything that we need to live a life of godliness, a life that is pleasing to God, is given to us through our relationship with the Lord. Look at verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is a prayer wish. He, he, uh, Peter is praying that his uh, readers would experience increasing, transforming grace and peace, that it would multiply and grow in abundance. Now, how does this grace and peace multiply in our lives? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, the Father, and the Son, Jesus our Lord. So what does knowledge refer to here? Well, in the first instance, it includes facts about Jesus, right thinking about Jesus, uh, understanding who he is according to Scripture. Uh, we sometimes separate heart knowledge from head knowledge. Maybe there's a point there, but head knowledge matters. You know, the higher doesn't stand without the lower. Uh, to believe in Jesus, follow him, we need to know some things about who he is. And isn't the case that when you love someone, you seek to know things about them? When you were engaged to your fiance and you got a text from them, an email, a letter if you're older, um, right, you would scrutinize that document to see what it reveals about their heart. What do they like? What do they not like? You were a student of your fiance, were you not? You sought to know them. That's what you do when you love someone. Or have you ever been interested in like a historical figure? Winston Churchill, Napoleon, whatever. What do you do? You want facts. You want to know, what is this person like? You pick up a biography and you go, ooh, is that what he liked to eat? Fascinating, right? <laughs> He'd sit in the tub and eat, I think Churchill would, uh, and, and do these things. You're, you're fascinated by, when you have an interest in a person, you also pursue facts about that person. So let us never discount facts about people, facts about Christ specifically. Where there is love, there is exact thinking, Precise thinking about our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is more to knowledge than simply knowing about Jesus and facts about Jesus. There's a relational component. When someone says to you, do you know Jesus Christ? They don't mean, do you know facts about Jesus? They mean, do you have a personal relationship with him? Are you trusting in him as your savior, submitting to him as your king, pouring out your heart to him in prayer, hearing his voice in scripture, 
eager to please him as your Lord? Are you walking in the back and forth of fellowship with Jesus Christ? Is there a personal relationship with him? If we are going to experience a multiplication of grace and peace in our lives, it's only as we walk with Jesus Christ. Walk in his presence, receive his word, seek to submit to him. It is in the walk with the Lord and the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ that we increasingly grow up and mature and become the people God wants us to be. Peter goes on in verse 3 to further describe this knowledge. He tells us that this relationship with Jesus, by this, we have everything we need for life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's, it's likely that that pair of words, life and godliness, refer to a godly life. They should be taken together. Uh, and what Peter is saying, everything that we need to live a life that's pleasing to God, at every point we have in Jesus. Isn't that an amazing statement about the sufficiency that we have in Christ? What you need to live a faithful life that delights the Father, that brings him honor, we have. Not in ourselves, but through the knowledge of him who called us, that is, through Jesus Christ. Notice also that this knowledge of Jesus, this relationship with him as we've seen, is the result of his calling. Through the knowledge of him who called us. Why do we have a relationship with Jesus? Well, we talked about he granted us faith. But here that same truth is being reinforced from a different perspective. We have a relationship with Jesus in the first instance because he summoned us to a relationship with him. This calling is not a mere invitation. This calling is a divine summons. That's, the, that's often the way the word calling is used in the context of salvation. The summons of the king that is effective, that we respond to. Why is he our shepherd and we are his sheep? Because he came seeking us and not the reverse. He drew us into fellowship with himself. And because of this living, vibrant relationship with King Jesus, we have everything that we need to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, to be the parents we should be, employees we should be, and honor Jesus and everything. Now, it's important to underscore that because we often disbelieve it, don't we? We feel that, in fact, we don't have everything we need to live lives that are pleasing to God. We don't have the full provision for a life of godliness. One reason we feel that way is because we look at our disadvantages in life. I grew up in a broken home, not me personally, I'm speaking those, praise God I didn't grow up in a broken home. Um, but some have, you know, they grew up without a father. Uh, they grew up without a, a male figure to exemplify what it means to be a man and lead a household, and they become fathers. And they think, I didn't grow up with a father, I don't, I've never seen it done, how am I going to be a good father? Oh, it is undoubtedly a, a real loss to grow up without a dad, there's no question. But if what is said here is true, then even those with those kinds of disadvantages have what it takes to please God, can be the men that God has called them to be. Other people feel they don't have what it takes because they look at their responsibility and they look at themselves and they feel too weak. They're daunted. Taking care of aging parents, dealing with a rebellious teenager, patiently working on a troubled marriage, dealing with chronic health issues, dealing with difficult bosses at work or other employees day after day. We look at the challenge, we look at ourselves and say, I can't, I can't do it. Again, Peter says, everything that you need to please God in those hard situations, you have in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are right now, in Jesus, there is provision for you to glorify God in what you're facing, to conduct yourself cheerfully 
and in a way that honors him. And finally, another reason we disbelieve that we have everything is because we look at our track record and we see that we've tried to put certain sins to death and we continue to struggle and we've made so little progress from our perspective that we're tempted to feel like, ah, maybe we're destined to be second-class Christians. But we need to be very careful about measuring what's possible by our experiences instead of God's Word. We should always let Scripture determine what's possible and available to us. And according to Scripture, everything we need to please God and be faithful to Him in the face of life's challenges we have in Jesus Christ. That should encourage us not to lose heart in our struggle with sin or desire to grow. We should press on holding fast to this truth that Jesus will provide for us to be faithful in, in all things. Now, this is the crucial part. We have this sufficiency, but notice where we have it. Through the knowledge of him. Again, it is only in the context of relationship with Jesus that we experience everything that we need to live godly lives. Out of fellowship with him, we don't experience everything that we need for godliness. Communion, fellowship, relationship with Jesus is essential for that. And it's important to stress this because one temptation uh, that we can encounter ourselves or we've seen it in others perhaps is that we want the benefits of Jesus without wanting Jesus. We want what Jesus can do for us. We want forgiveness of sins. We might even want moral improvement, right? You can want moral improvement without wanting Jesus. Be a little more disciplined, a little more humble. That would be nice, right? We might want happy marriages, but not Jesus, but we want to use Jesus to get these things, but we don't really want a relationship with him. Peter is cautioning us against that. If you want something for, from Jesus, pursue it in the context of relationship. Pursue him first, and all of these other things will be added to you as well. You need to walk with the Lord. You need to love him. You need to spend time in fellowship with him. Whatever else should characterize a Christian, it should be love for Jesus Christ. I want more of Jesus. Can you honestly say that this morning? Yes, you want, you want, you rejoice in the forgiveness of your sins, that's good. You want to grow, that's good. But do you want more of Jesus? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you enjoy those times of communion where you're in his presence and you're listening to his word and you're praying? Have you walked with him a long time and you've seen his faithfulness and grace to you over many years and your heart wells with delight in the Lord? Perhaps as you read scripture and you see the scriptures bearing witness to him, you don't just rejoice in the fact that you're forgiven. You don't just rejoice in the blessings that you have from him. You look at him and are overwhelmed by his beauty, by his excellence, and you find your heart drawn to him. Do you have that kind of warm, vibrant, living relationship with Jesus? It's out of that kind of relationship that transformation happens, that we have everything that we need for godliness. Can you resonate with the words of Thomas Akempis? What can the world offer you without Jesus? To be without Jesus is hell most grievous. To be with Jesus is to know the sweetness of heaven. If Jesus is with you, no enemy can harm you. Whoever finds Jesus finds a rich treasure and a good above every good. He who loses Jesus loses much indeed. And more than the whole world, and more than the whole world. Poorest of all is he who lives without Jesus, and the richest of all is he who stands in favor with Jesus. Do you resonate with that? Is there a basic desire to know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to walk with him? 
It's in the context of that fellowship. It's in the context of walking with Jesus that we mature and experience everything that we need for godliness. Make that a priority. Maybe, maybe we're too much like Martha. You know the story from scriptures, Luke, Luke 10? Jesus is there and he's teaching. Martha was distracted with much serving, Luke 10, 40. Or she could justify it, presumably. Lord, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it so I can be a good hostess for you and for the apostles. But Mary, Mary made the better choice. She sat down at his feet and listened to his teaching. Perhaps we're too much like Martha. We're almost certainly too much like Martha. You know, we're motivated, productive, efficient people with calendars and schedules. And, you know, we want to get things done. That's good. Don't get me wrong. That's, those are good things to be productive, fruitful. Uh, but sometimes we can get so busy even doing good things for Jesus that we forget the basic need to sit at his feet and listen to his teaching. Is there time to just quietly be in, in his presence and learn from the Lord and commune with him? To the extent that that's not happening, we're impoverished. Third and final thing Jesus gives is conformity to the nature of God or the character of God. It's through Jesus' initiative that we are converted. It's through our relationship with Jesus that we grow, as we've seen. And it is through the work of Jesus that one day we will be like God. Verse 4. By which, what is by which referred to? If you're using the ESV, that's how it's worded there. By which looks back to verse 3, to the glory and excellence, the moral excellence of Jesus. And what Peter um, probably has in view is the redemptive work of Jesus where his glory and excellence were revealed by these things Jesus has granted to us his promises so because of his death and resurrection on the basis of that work we have certain precious and very great promises but what are they we can get a sense of what they are by looking at the purpose clause in verse 4 so he's given us these promises um, and when these promises are realized, what happens? Through them, that is through the promises, you, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So when these promises are realized, we will be like God. And the reference here is almost certainly to the second coming, when Jesus returns and we will perfectly reflect the character of God. Uh, this is confirmed by 2 Peter 3.13, the end of the letter where he writes, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So promises look forward to that glorious return of Jesus Christ. Through these promises, there will come a day when we will become partakers of the divine nature. You could see how a lot of bad theology would be built on that language, could you not? Partakers of the divine nature. Let's be clear at the outset about what Peter doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that we're somehow going to be absorbed into the being and nature of God. Bad reading. It's not what he means. No. Uh, neither does he mean that we will cease to have a human nature and then have God's nature. Not what he means. Well, what, okay, what does he mean? Uh, First thing to note is how that phrase is used in Peter's day and other documents written in this, in this time period. If you look at various Jewish writings from this period, you see that that phrase, partakers of the divine nature, frequently means something like reflecting the qualities of the gods or God. 
It's not that you're absorbed into him. It's that in some ways, on a creaturely level, you are reflecting his character. So for instance, the first century uh, Jewish historian Josephus writes of a royal advisor this way. He is one that seemed to partake of the divine nature, both as to wisdom and knowledge of futurities. Future. Uh, he reflected the gods insofar as he was wise and uh, was able to anticipate what would happen, would have a certain kind of knowledge of the future. Not absorbed into the divine nature, just reflected the character of the gods. Uh, this is confirmed, by the way, by the immediate context. Look what he, Peter writes immediately after. He speaks of those who become partakers of the divine nature. Why? Having escaped from the corruption, that is moral corruption, that is in the world because of sinful desire. So it's clearly a moral conformity to the divine nature. We reflect God in the sense that we uh, partake of his goodness, his wisdom, his love, his goodness, his strength. We reflect these things back to him and to others. That's what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. You know what that means? It means that one day our warfare will be done. This fight, this bitter fight against pride and selfishness and impurity. Uh, you, know, you know the wretchedness I'm talking about, the desire to be holy but falling well short of that desire again and again. That's not going to last forever. A day is coming when we will reflect, perfectly reflect the character of God. We will be like the sun shining in all of its radiance and fullness. We will be good and strong and courageous and as we ought to be but are yet not. And it will be glorious. C.S. Lewis says somewhere that if you could see that future version of yourself or other believers, if somehow that future self were to walk into the present, you might be tempted to prostrate yourself before them because of their dazzling glory. That's where we're going. Puts it this way, mere Christianity. Mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people even here and now and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences which ne could never have been jumped. We, th we tend to think of that ultimate transformation as maybe a slight change in degree, perhaps, but we will become, in, in a certain sense, a different kind of creature. We're, we're thinking about jumping over things. God's going to give us wings to soar. What we will be is not yet revealed. We don't know what it will be to be a glorified creature, but we will be. We will be strong and wise and good like our maker. And then all of the residual what? Pride, selfishness, lust that brings so much misery, impatience will be torn out of us decisively and we will be then as we ought to be. I think that if you understand that that's the trajectory your life is on, it puts a lot of things in perspective. What's the goal? Glorification. That's where you're going if you believe in Jesus. That's what he has for you. What difference would it make to see your life in the present in that light? To understand that that's your final destination. Surely it would keep us from becoming too readily discouraged. It would help us to keep fighting, seeking to grow, because we know we're not going to fight forever. The victory will be won. 
And doesn't it put our sufferings in perspective? We're inclined to see suffering as basically a disruption of our comfort, ease, and pleasure, and so we're disheartened. But what if suffering and pain and the plans that don't come to fruition, what if these are stepping stones that lead to glory, that cause us to partake of the divine nature? Couldn't we handle them with a little more patience and composure? If this is what it takes to become that someday, surely we can handle that with the grace, of course, that he provides. So as we step back from this passage, we should be convinced of two things. We are needy, needy, needy. We are beggars, this is true. And Christ is sufficient, sufficient, sufficient. Through his death and resurrection, we have faith. We have everything we need to grow in godliness. And he doesn't stop until the work is finished, until one day we reflect God. That's our Savior. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus, forgive us for so often, without perhaps realizing it, using you to get what we really want and neglecting to cultivate our communion with you and relationship with you. Help us to repent of that and whatever else we might want in this life. Grant us to want from the depth of our souls more of you. Amen.